Welcome to Better Money, a show that points an x-ray at folks driving capital and driving change, people working for better money. I'm Jefferson Smith, and I come from the nonprofit world. And I'm Noelle Brown, and I come from the for-profit world. We're joined today by Darren Dodson of Illumin Capital with a stated purpose of changing how investment is done and saying that we can transform our global economic system to create a more equitable, empathetic, and prosperous world. Welcome, Darren. Oh, it's great to be here. Darren, to help our listeners who are not familiar with the work of your company, how would you describe Illumin Capital? Illumin Capital is an impact investing fund dedicated to reducing implicit bias within its investments and unlocking impact and underestimated returns, specifically addressing underestimated returns that are blocked when investors see women and people of color that are pitching or raising capital. These are unconscious biases that lead to these underestimations that if we're able to curb, we're able to uh, make more money and make more impact in the world. Hmm. So let, let's go a little deeper with that. Um, can you give us an example or kind of highlight some of the recent work that you've been doing at Illumin Capital? Sure. Um, we uh, have been embarking with Stanford University and several of the leading researchers in the world across finance and social psychology to uh, build a uh, a strategy that is informed by evidence and research to systematically test and help those that we invest into and those that invest in us to understand how these biases show up and prevent them from seeing potential returns within their respective investment pools. Some of the um, partners that we work with, for example, are in the field of education technology in that field, currently four times as many young black people in K through 12 education versus their uh, white male peers, or it's spelled for the exact same infraction. And you can imagine as we create AI and machine learning within education technology to accelerate the minds and teaching um, scalability of teachers, that if we don't take into account that bias, that teachers don't even know that and realize that they're um, uh, perpetuating within their classroom, then we'll scale the achievement gap instead of reduce it. So give us a garden variety example, or maybe your favorite example of how you consider implicit bias when making investment decisions or making choices in your firm? Well, there are a couple different ways in which we go about um, these processes, but one of the ways is that we look at the way we tested a number of different investors and just, uh, for example, change the race of those that were presenting to them and have run um, some research on that process, and we found that systematically, again and again, those with um, the exact same credentials, when they presented to the uh, many, many different investors, would be underestimated uh, because of their race or gender. Um, so one of the things that we do is we help investors to understand that their mind works and take shortcuts. And based on the many different inputs that they've had over the course of their life, there are ways to counteract that. And that's what we specialize in as a firm is enabling investors to counteract that. Question for you. Um, I, for some reason, I'm, I'm thinking of an example from, you know, Muhammad Yunus's work and kind of changing the perception around loans to people who greatly need them and tend to not be able to access loans. Are you doing a similar type of work in terms of trying to change people's whole thinking around how 
every person and particularly certain demographics that aren't thought of as managing capital well are actually doing just fine when given the opportunity? That's right. And maybe I'll share a little bit of background on how I got interested in this problem. I um, had the opportunity to work with the Center for Responsible Lending about 10 years ago and run systematic data on the overpricing of mortgage loans to Latino and Black people. And we studied um, using GIS statistical mapping and looking at the overlay of loan terms and found that banks would overcharge people above risk, thus destroying their future ability to pay back the loans Mm -hmm. for short-term gains um, and overpricing a segment of the population based on race, which um, is illegal. Um, But but nonetheless, the natural inhibitions of people within the firms when they saw race as a factor in underwriting uh, resulted in adding risk to the balance sheet of the bank in those different ways. So part of what I study is not the the populations of people that we know um, based on uh, the, the way that talent is distributed throughout the world. We'd expect to see a world in which women and people of color are equally represented in the ownership of firms. Right now, across the country of the $69 trillion in capital, only 1.3% is women and people of color-owned investment firms. So we're so far, we're about $35 trillion under what we'd expect um, in terms of the way the complexion of the investment ecosystem looks right now. So the question becomes, what is preventing that? And part Mm -hmm. of what we see is the same thing that prevented banks um, from making uh, decent loans to Latino and Black people is showing up within the investment business and, um, and eroding the potential to create returns within that process. Question I've got. Are you doing this as a social justice warrior? And for me, that is not a scarlet letter, but a red badge of courage. Or do you see an investment opportunity here? Do you see sort of an arbitrage chance, a chance to find value where it's being missed? And if so, say more about that. Well, one of the most beautiful and eloquent um, elements of the problem that we're focused on is that we don't have to decide. My background and uh, my passion for this is deeply rooted and when I was about 16 years old, meeting Julian Bond, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and a number of other, Arthur Kanoy, who, who argued the Goodman Shorter and Cheney case, the uh, blacks and Jews that were murdered together, uh, organizing voting rights in the Mississippi River um, Delta, along with Bob Moses, and meeting these people that had um, dedicated their lives to justice. And then in other parts of my career, I've, I've met people who have built significant companies um, like Steve Ballmer or Jeff Reichs at Microsoft, for example. And part of the strategy that Illumin Capital is unequivocally pursuing is the idea that if we, if we operate with biases towards women and people of color, we are, uh, as Dr. King would say, um, hurting the humanity of people, Um, but yet we're also uh, putting at risk our returns and not able to see the potential value that the humanity and the return potential of the people that are presenting to us would uh, would garner. So by this is sort of the perfect marriage of um, increasing impact, which we are unabashedly an impact investor, But we also see that this brand of impact investing can generate higher returns by reducing the biases towards incredibly talented women and people of color that many investors, um, if they were right in front of their face, would automatically discount based on their subconscious or unconscious biases. So... We talked a little bit about um, 16 years ago and the people that you've met. There's been 16 years to follow. Um, What's been the journey? I mean, how did you get up to this point of doing this work? Well, I I spent early years uh, in terms of 
being inspired by the people that we talked about a little bit earlier, like Julian Vaughn and John Lewis um, and others. And then spent this year years doing and showing how the biggest banks in the world were systematically overpricing, hurting their own business models and um, underappreciating the ability of people of color in the United States to add to the future of their value of the bank. Um, and then went to business school at Stanford where I had an incredible ability to, to learn. And I spent a lot of the time at Stanford learning about values-oriented companies, but applying my learnings to, this is right after Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, where I got incredibly active and partnered with some of the leading private equity funds and uh, technology companies to engage their workforces in the recovery after Katrina applying their skills. And in the first years of that program in New Orleans, I would invite leaders of these companies down. And it was really tough because they would walk in and tell entrepreneurs what to do. And the entrepreneurs in the initial year of the uh, beginning of the program would kind of spit them out because they felt that these smart people, albeit, would show up and tell them how to be in their context. In subsequent years, um, we, we brought about 10,000 uh, people down to New Orleans over a 12-year period, but about um, in the first years, we bring them down in groups of 100. And one of the things that happened in the second year is we helped give the volunteers from these companies and private equity funds context around race and class and culture and gender and the history of New Orleans. And we found that they were much better able to apply their skill sets and ideas to helping these entrepreneurs in New Orleans rebuild their lives and families and, and actually listen to the challenges that they were facing. And um, in, in that underlying kind of insight became one of the theses of uh, one of the theses in, in building uh, Illumin Capital later on. After I left New Orleans, I spent seven years at the Calvert Funds, one of the uh, leaders and sort of best brands within the space of impact investing, working with the founder, uh, Wayne Silby, and I had the opportunity to manage a portfolio of 44 funds and 40 direct investments, all in impact investing across um, health-enabled technologies or education technologies or um, sustainable clean tech technologies. And looking at these areas of impact investing, having a global reach, and then setting out after seven years to combine both of these different experiences, one of understanding some of the unconscious biases present in the earlier part of my career in New Orleans and in uh, the subprime lending industry, and then looking at the impact investing and, and skill set I built while I was at Calvert and setting out to build a firm, Illumin Capital, to take on this big challenge of the 1.3% of women and people of color in investment management that own firms and how to change that by reducing biases towards them. Darren, what is one of the best ways that you would advise of companies, might be new to this, to better evaluate implicit bias within their own company? Well, one, one idea is realize that it's a, a lifelong commitment and not a day of training. So right now, the implicit bias kind of industry of the training, often um, people get trained in a day and they think, well, you know, I've, I've sort of solved the problem in myself and now I'm all set. I think the, the firms that we work with and the journey that we bring our investors on is a 10-year process. And we work quarterly with them around coaching and insights related to hiring and investments and um, looking at board construction of companies, et cetera. So to realize that this is a marathon and not a sprint is one of the very first stages. The benefits of having a diverse board, the benefits of seeing all opportunities, not just the ones you're used to seeing. And so do you think as the data becomes more and more available, um, 
people will make that decision, whether it's it's the right decision to make or because it's an economic one, or do you not care so long as they're seeing it for what it is now? Great question. There's, as we estimate at Illumin Capital, there's $35 trillion in underestimated investment opportunities within women and people of color that are systematically uh, missed due to implicit bias. So, you know, the, the way that we think about this problem is like any firm um, when it goes out to create an investment strategy, and that is that it's an investment thesis. And there aren't many markets that are $35 trillion in size um, in, the, in the world. And the opportunity for solving and understanding biases that our minds make in these shortcuts that prevent us from seeing the humanity of women and people of color and the underestimated returns that they represent is a massive problem that our argument is, is well worth solving and well worth committing the next uh, 20 or 30 years of our firm and creating a generation of people and a movement around to rectify this um, long um, and persistent problem within the history of the investment business that has led to um, suboptimal returns. Mm -hmm. How do you define success? What's better money look like to you? $35 trillion uh, normally distributed as we would expect across the population. Um, and not held to the 1.3%. You know, I mean, you think about like Martin Luther King and him being assassinated um, 50 years ago last month. And we're at 1.3% 50 years later after he dedicated his life to economic justice. And the asset management business is so far behind the integration of bathrooms and schools, but yet it is one of the most powerful industries in the entire world to get right because it's the backbone of justice for ultimately the education system, the healthcare system, the um, energy systems of the world. It funds all the other companies that we would like to see justice um, uh, achieved within and equitable outcomes achieved within. So for, for those that are activists around the world, if their strategy doesn't include conversations with investments, investors in the largest um, pools of capital in the world, I believe they're, they're necessary and really important, but they're insufficient to really um, get to the world that we want to see that is equitable across race and gender and is representative of the planet. Darren, you brought up something about your background that I was just hoping we could dive into a little bit deeper. You mentioned about the kind of inequity that existed or still exists in, in lending. And now I know when, when I'm having to do my you know, mortgage training and the continuing education and ethics that I have to do around um, being able to talk to clients uh, even about their mortgages, that there is a lot more in place in terms of actual governmental policies about non-discrimination around lending. And that was all because of what happened during, you know, the last 10 years. My question to you, though, is this is a training I have to do every year. And I, every time I see it, I think, okay, this is actually making a difference for our society. There isn't the same training for 401ks or for investment strategies or building wealth or investing in private capital. Do you see that there should be some role that the government plays in trying to support that equity um, as, I mean, mostly because of the wealth disparity that we see? So I think that <laughs> the government... Having worked with a team of 60 attorneys to pass laws in 16 states, 18 states, to um, curb predatory lending practices uh, that 
are now illegal and probably the basis of that training that is now required, which was not required uh, previously. You know, I think government has an important role. One of the things that I realized when I was working on public policy and studying it and as an undergraduate, undergraduate degree is companies are incredibly influential in crafting public policy. So part of what we need is the data that shows, like this data around the 1.3% of women-owned investment management firms, women and people of color-owned investment management firms, to even begin the policy analysis of what to change. So that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about the journey of our firm, Aluminum Capital, because in our strategy, what we're trying to do is create the most advanced coaching and training program in the world to enable investors to see underestimated trends, which later policy can kind of codify in some ways and make it uh, something that's really important. But also if we're able to show that, like we've seen so far in the research, that people will leave returns on the table because of their unconscious biases and teach them how to reduce those to increase their returns, the market will actually drive capital insight and training in order to maximize returns within that area. I see the power of what happens when the market awakens to a capital opportunity. I guess I just wonder, you know, how quick can that change happen? And who needs to be on board for that to really synchronize in a way that the market pays attention? Well, it's a really, it's a really good, good question. And that's why I think of this more as a movement than a mm -hmm. only an investment strategy. So it's a, a way of like any investment strategy, figuring out where the latent value lives in the market. And if we were talking to any of the Wall Street investors, they would spend most of their days trying to figure out where these underestimated returns are. And we don't think that we're any different in that we've found an area where there's uh, $35 trillion in underestimated returns and we're systematically approaching with a research-based thesis, uh, a strategy to try to figure out how to unlock the, the people that are being missed in terms of their humanity and the returns that they represent within our economy. So it's in its simplest form, what we're doing is just executing an investment thesis mm -hmm. that as a result of, and it's intentional, we um, also liberate investors to see people that they've been missing throughout their entire careers through no, um, uh, many through no fault of their own. It's just their inability to evaluate when mm -hmm. race and gender is present within investment processes. Mm -hmm. When you introduced this topic, you said, well, what we notice is that when there are more diverse firms, they don't show, I think I heard you say, they don't show reduced uh, returns, they show roughly equal returns, but even though they show equal returns, they are significantly underinvested in. Did I hear that right? Yeah, let me let me try it one more time. Great. Um, basically, within the research that we've conducted with Stanford, we look at over a hundred different asset allocators whose job it is to pick the best investments in the world. And we asked them whether they would invest in the exact same track record, um, the performance of two high-performing people, one led by uh, a person of color and one led by a white person, a white male person. And 
they systematically under allocate and um, believe less in the firm's ability to execute its thesis if it's a person of color, controlling for all other factors. So what we find is that investors will decide to leave capital on the table in an unconscious way that could lead to lower returns within their overall investment portfolio when race and gender are present. It raises a question to me, and I come to this as not even not an expert, but just someone of curiosity trying to engage with social justice as we try to awaken his world to be more anti-misogynist, more anti-racist. And when I hear that, I could and I hear a couple strands as I try to wrestle with it. One strand is of the one strand of the debate that's happening in the country, the necessary debates happening in the country. And one is uh, let's have a colorblind world. The other is no, no, see people don't have a colorblind world. What I heard you say is, well, in the investment space, if we just didn't see color, we might, in fact, have better investment. Help me. And again, I'm not sure if I'm going to we're going to include this question, but there's something here I'm curious about. Right. Is the is the best path for uh, the for greater investment equity, a more colorblind world or one that sees people better? Well, I, I, I'm not arguing that colorblind is the way to go. So I, I, I but I, I'm familiar with that perspective. Um, it's not one that I hold. I definitely feel that an investor, for example, that um, that cannot see the largest trends in the country of women and people of color who will make up, women already make up the majority, but people of color who will soon make up the majority of the buying power of the country and be able to um, uh, also see the insights around their own communities would be at a huge disadvantage um, because they can't see the value of an entire community of people. So that's a, I, I mean, I definitely think that seeing people's uh, uh, unique differences are really important within investment processes. What I'm also saying is that when you put apples to apples um, and you only look at the differences in race when you're dealing with investors, that it's a, a huge challenge that has left our world incredibly imbalanced. And I think I'm, I'm trying to share with the broader justice, um, social justice movements, the idea that the financial system is incredibly inequitable, so much so that it would lose money before it would invest in women and people of color. And part of what causes that challenge should be, um, you know, on the on the top floor of every single investment bank and investment institution in the world, which is that they would lose money before they'd invest in as good women and people of color run firms, as good or better. So that's the, um, I think the insight is that there, there is something missing in many analyses of social justice strategies. One of those things is the backbone of the global financial markets, which is 98.7% white male led. So if you don't have that in your analysis, it's probably something to think about. And then how do we rectify this strategy is we can help people understand that um, that they're allocating suboptimally with um, an unprecedented lack of diversity that is unprecedented across any other field. It's a, unprecedented across any natural system. Like when we look at birds or ducks and, you know, if there were 98 percent um, white birds in the lake in Oakland, where I where I live, we think that was a little odd. And the fact that there weren't, uh, you know, uh, uh, black ducks and and green ducks and and other kinds of ducks. When you look in the ocean, there are sharks and there are minnows and there are all kinds of fish. 
Um, so it's just a very odd thing that is a vestige of the way, uh, you know, the country was created um, that needs to be uh, dealt with. And the irony is that the, a system that was created to make and maximize profit will forego uh, the investment in women and people of color, and, and in many cases unintentionally, in order to continue um, uh, you, you continue some of these great disparities. And I think that, that one role that we can play, which is a role that a living capital plays, is to help people realize that what they signed up for in creating higher returns, holding a mirror to them and saying, this is a huge area that you're missing and a huge uh, opportunity that you're missing. Let's figure out how to work on it together and unlock the humanity of people and financial returns and markets. What I hear you saying is the meritocracy in financial markets is a myth or at least overstated. The meritocracy in financial markets is a myth. Okay, so I would also say that in the investment consulting word, world, um, it's part of the reason why I'm moving to the West Coast. I'll be closer to you soon, Darren. <laughs> is because when it comes to money, the whole con, the whole way in which people establish trust and they feel like they can meet with someone who has their best interests and their family's best interests in mind is that, and I just saw this presentation by Herman Brody on establishing trust as an advisor, is that they often want someone who looks like them or who they can relate to and so there is that natural barrier that exists because we just have not so many people in this role. And so it, it goes also to the notion of role models, right? And so I think identifying the bias that exists is very important, but then raising the profile of those people who are not the quintessential kind of archetypical success story in financial services is critical to, to moving this forward. So we had, for example, Rakaya Adams on the show um, just a while back, and her whole emphasis was creating excellence that people will want to follow. And so I think the more that we're able to illuminate and raise up the volume on those incredible success stories, of, and these people happen to not be you know, the archetypical profile um, of a very successful individual in finance that can only help push it forward. Well, I think one is, uh, Rakaya is uh, a wonderful friend, and um, I, I love that perspective about creating um, excellence. And I think I, I would also offer that the data that I've seen and helped to um, pioneer the creation of in collaboration with the leading uh, financial researchers and social psychologists in the world suggests that a person's performance or excellence is not sufficient to overcome the biases and in fact increases. Um, in other words, um, mm, like a, a tokenism student that's black in a class um, and our research team helped tremendously with the study that showed that the, the teachers in K through 12 education that over dis uh, discipline expel and suspend black kids and at, at 4x the rate of their white male peers, which is happening in every classroom across the country right now, is, is basically, it, it is not taking into consideration, there are, are kids that are performing at excellent levels of performance that are getting discipline, over-discipline and expelled. And, and in fact, what a, a talented student would do in that, in that scenario would be to wonder why they were getting over-disciplined um, four times as much. And again, the teacher is unaware that they're doing this, but the impact on the child is still there. And it's possible that the child that is performing at the highest level is being reprimanded because the 
teacher's mentality cannot hold the idea that this student, um, uh, you know, within their uh, kind of unconscious bias could be possible, you know, and they might be cheating, right? So there are a whole bunch of different things and elements that play in to whether or not bias um, can see excellence. And I think what we're arguing is almost the, the, the opposite, which is that excellence is good, but if you're being evaluated for an investment, excellence could be dangerous. To, um, uh, and it could be dangerous because the mind of the investor is not prepared to see an excellent um, African-American or female entrepreneur, and it's outside of what they might expect within their socialization. So they actually need some work to be able to do that. And it's mm -hmm. it's an important thing. And there are excellent women and people of color presenting every single day. But there are also less than a collective 3% of overall um, entrepreneurs that are raising capital in Silicon Valley. So right. excellent is not good enough is what we're seeing. And in fact, you can be excellent, better able to deliver return to investors based on objective uh, data and still face substantial um, bias and underestimation from the investment field, just like um, a, a black student that is in kindergarten is underestimated by their teacher so much that they're disciplined four times as much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something you said uh, reminds me of, I, I got to hear Adam Grant speak yesterday, and one of the things that he recommends is, um, or he talks about is, the unfamiliar becoming familiar. Like mm. how, when you, when you generate ideas, you need to help the person who's trying. You're trying to adopt those ideas, help the unfamiliar become familiar. And so you have to master the art of repetition. So eventually, they're able to kind of sing the same tune and receive that very different idea in a way that actually creates change of behavior. So. What it sounds like is in order for us to really um, work on this bias, like you said, it's not a one-day workshop. This is a constant movement that has to you know, envelop our society and our capital markets and in our education system in order for there to be any kind of progress. Yes, and I often liken this to, you know, if we were uh, – if we were talking about martial arts, we might think about, uh, you know, incredible leader like Bruce Lee. And, you know, you can read a book about bias and there are many great books about bias, but you could read a book about Jeet Kwon Do or, um, or karate and, and you could go out and then try to fight people um, and it wouldn't work. <laughs> so, I mean, the practice and commitment to changing behavior over time, the culture of um, private equity firms through uh, a partnership and um, a collection of investors is what we're committed to as a firm. It's not a, a, a tomorrow commitment. It's a lifelong commitment. And one of my friends um, out in uh, Eugene Oregon is part of a martial arts dojo there, and he said that his dad, who's a, a seventh-degree black belt, would often, as they were growing up, invite in students that were white belts. And they said, when are we going to get our black belt? When are we going to get our black belt? And he would hand them a black belt, and he said, here. And they would all run away because they didn't want it if they didn't earn it. And what <laughs> we're building is a group of people that are investors and those we invest into and our partners that want to earn it. And mm -hmm. it turns out that there's $35 trillion in underestimated um, uh, you know, assets out there that um, when we bring women and people of color into the workforce uh, of the investment managed ownership of the investment management firms, we'll be better able to, to execute um, strategies that um, bring that to where it could be in terms of outperformance within respective portfolios. And it turns out that earning it is worth something, um, worth something in the human dimension of understanding the humanity of other people. 
which it should be enough on its own, but it's also worth something in the return material, uh, return to investor realm, which also is uh, incredibly important to fiduciaries uh, around the world. And it's important before we identified and articulated this important thesis around the problem, but implicit bias by its nature will be missed by many investors because of the homogeneous makeup of the field currently. So Mm -hmm. by bringing in different people, creating different perspectives, training people to see these underestimated returns throughout the commitment of mastering this area of investing, we're doing something unique and, and different and uh, intend to share this thesis and execute this thesis until the world looks like it's uh, it should uh, relative to the population and is well on its way to being predominantly women and people of color, uh, as we'd expect, given the demographics of the world. Thank you so much for what you're doing. What you're doing is awesome. Uh, and when I think about, personally, when I try to evaluate the... Uh, the intersection of implicit bias and the breakdown of the market or the brokenness of the market and your, um, I don't know whether to call it your assertion, your conclusion, your realization, uh, your insight that the meritocracy is a myth. Is it as simple, is it as simple as people, or is it almost as simple as people invest with who they trust and so much of trust is inflicted by our own uh, implicit racism, implicit misogyny, or worse. Uh, and then if you peel back, the initial greatest pockets of wealth in this country were, in fact, in the south of the country, based in a slave culture. And as was, those were the rich kids of 200 years ago. And if we just continue a uh, that people with money give money to the people that they trust, we just continue the same. Same uh, racist transition of wealth that we've had for 250 years, or is it is that far too simplistic? Yeah, I think it's too simplistic. Um, financial markets are relatively complex. Um, from a scientific uh, perspective, what we do know is that you know there there are a bunch of people called fiduciaries all throughout the world who have signed up legally to invest in the things that make the most money for their investors. The research that we're conducting suggests that they are not doing that due to their own biases. And they are, you know, not bad people that wake up every day to not uh, achieve the outcome for which they're legally signed up for. But they are people that if you um, put two qualified people in front of them, one black and one white with the exact same qualifications due to their own biases will invest in the white person. Um, and there's a, you know, and not, and not in the black person. And I think that they're lo- the, the insight is that they'll lose money in order to only invest in white people again and again and again. And, if we can help them to see that, then we can change that, help them to make more money, do what they're legally uh, bound to do within the context of their pension fund or sovereign wealth fund or within their family office or, or foundation endowment and unlock this uh, really important part of seeing other people's humanity and making returns that help them get promoted and um, and, you know, help them uh, be successful people and contributing people to economies and growth. So it's a, uh, you know, that's the that's the way that I see it. I in and I, I see people as inherently good, um, and the society in which we live um, has vestiges of uh, bias that that um, operate in a way that that counteracts their ability to achieve, achieve their own goals. And as a result, hurts society and other people's possibilities in an unintentional way. Now, there's some bad people out there um, that are out to systematically hurt other people. Um, and I also think that although their their uh, tactics are bad, 
their hearts are not bad and they have their own journey to go on. Those are not the people that we focus on with our strategy. We focus on the vast majority of people that are um, subject to their own implicit biases that prevent them from seeing their own goals, their own abilities to achieve the missions of their organizations and make return and make positive impact on the world. Darren, we're heading into our rapid round now. So first question, a piece of advice you got that still inspires you. Okay. Um, a piece of advice that I, I received through the pages of um, James Baldwin's Fire Next Time is that basically that people that want to create change have this quintessential problem. And that problem is that many of them want to create change. And of those that want to create change, few of them act because to act is to be in danger. And the biggest danger that people focus on or are susceptible to in our field is the danger of their identity um, and, and, and sort of losing the ideas that created um, and the myths, as we called them before, that created the idea of a meritocracy being the predominant way in which people um, achieve within the financial management system. And suspending that idea to realize that the system is so inequitable that that is, in fact, impossible as a reality, that the barriers to investment management moving from 1.3% women and people of color owned as a, uh, and, and managed as a field are the barriers to meritocracy. And if meritocracy were to prevail, what we'd expect to see is above 50% women and people of color and ownership and management of investment management if we were seeking the highest returns. What's a factoid everyone should know? Something you recently learned that surprised you? Yeah, I think um, one factoid that I, I found interesting is that Illumin Capital only founded uh, about a year ago is the leading pioneer in the world in combining um, this thesis of bias reduction related to women and people of color and financial investment. And because the field is so unequal, uh, I find it crazy that in 2017, 18, we are the pioneers of uh, creating a strategy that competes on the idea that women and people of color are underestimated within financial management. And that somebody hasn't figured out this before 50 years after the assassination of Dr. King. What's a book that needs to be on our bookshelves? Biased, which is um, a book that is published by the lead of our research team, um, Professor Jennifer Eberhardt at Stanford, and is an excellent and accessible read that also highlights some of our research within the book. But it, it looks at systems and unconscious bias across police systems and health systems and um, systems related to education, et cetera. But it's a great starter book for those that are interested in engaging in this work in a serious way. A quote that inspires you or that would inspire others to live their values? Language does not describe reality. It creates the reality that it describes. And what's one thing few people know about you? I'm a fisherman and I love fishing. Um, you know, philosophically, as an investor, we're constantly um, looking at places to figure out where the great investment opportunities are. And much like fishing in real life, those are often in un unsuspecting places by definition. If everybody knew where the fish are, it would be a terrible fishing spot. 
So what I do both in fishing and investing is look at areas where people don't think there are great opportunities and try to catch um, a, a bunch of, uh, you know, wonderful opportunities or fish. <laughs> what are some limits of social business? What's one thing democracy needs to do to address implicit bias that the market itself might not solve for? Well, um, for example, when we look at the criminal justice system and the progression from, as, as Brian Stevenson has really uh, highlighted, from slavery to Reconstruction to the Civil Rights Movement to mass incarceration, um, that's a, a problem that if I were a physician and I only had a scalpel that was a market-driven scalpel, I'm not sure that the patient would survive. Um, so I think that policy is absolutely essential to driving um, away the economic rents and returns that are being um, materialized because of people being locked in prison in the most incarcerated country in the world and there being a profit motive in order to keep them there. So without interventions um, and policy, we'll be looking at being an even more incarcerated country within the next 25 years than we are currently if nothing changes. So in that case, markets are broken. They're not solving the problem. They're continuing to reinforce the problem. And if we don't do something from the policy perspective, that will continue. Darren, you've given us so much to think about today. Thank you so much for being on our Better Money show. And um, just best of luck with all that you're doing. Well, thank you so much. I've so enjoyed our time together and look forward to um, staying in touch. Thank you again so much. Thank you also to Noel Picaro-Brown, our producers Amalia Boyles and Ruth Eddy and X-Ray FM in Portland, Oregon, for their support. Phantom Sons for the theme music. You can find Better Money episodes on xraypod.com and anywhere else you get podcasts. Questions, comments, high fives to share, you can email us at bettermoney at xray.fm. <laughs>